at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello. Happy uh, happy Clemson Hate Week. Yeah. That's a thing. It is a thing. Um, it's a thing for Clemson, too, though, where they, they don't like us. This year was actually a little more civil. Um, I felt like overall, I think we've just all kind of come to an understanding. I think Scott Schaefer leaving has helped quite a bit. Um, but yeah, in general, I would say Clemson Hate Week is more like Clemson Mild Dislike Week, where we introduce each other to like other side of the world cultures. <laughs> it's like that week in middle school where like you have like the big festival of like celebrating like all the different places that you know no one knows anything about. Yeah, I don't know if you were middle school did that. Oh we, no, no, we, we did, like a week we where that. like I figured that was like a normal thing. Yeah, this is like hey. They're good at college football, and uh, they they probably historically aren't as good as they want to uh, as they want to admit. But uh, they they do different things, and then you you know maybe insinuate that you might pull an upset if you're a player on, on our team, and they get really mad. I mean, but this is like I feel like this is more. I mean, that's a good analogy. I feel like this is more like exchange student week, except instead of <laughs> except instead of bringing ten German kids, we just brought ten German kids from Brooklyn. And like they're not really German, <laughs> they're just German Americans, and and they just act like they're Germans. And, and and I I'm going somewhere with this gag. I'm just not sure where um, exactly. But uh, yeah, it's been an enlightening week. I think uh, our sense of humor and Clemson's sense of humor don't necessarily match up all the time. That said, again, I felt like it made strides this year. I feel like we are. I mean, I don't think us winning is going to help anything if it ever happens um, in the near future, but. Nonetheless, I do feel like we're making progress, and that's, I guess, a good thing, since I would say as far as all of the ACC fan bases go, we've somehow, we're somehow the furthest away from being friends with Clemson, despite knowing them for like the least amount of time. Yeah, and I don't think it's like a full, like for, they probably think it's like a Syracuse thing. I don't think that that's it necessarily. I think in basketball, like, there's a thing with NC State fans, but they're not huge fans of ours, because I remember the year before we would join the ACC, we played at NC State and there was like a million Syracuse fans there. So like I think basketball has to do with some of like maybe some fans not fan base is not liking us that our basketball fan base is uh, Very its own animal. It, it is a good clumsy. <laughs> um which which uh, on that side of it I'm like, oh yeah, we're great traveling fans and we uh, are obnoxious and it's great. Um and I don't deny any of that. Um but for football, it's like it's very. I think it's a because Tums doesn't really care that much about basketball, at least compared to the rest of the ACC, and B, um, for whatever reason, like they. I think part of it was that they had this like inferiority complex. It's like that was just like hitting this peak of like they're actually becoming really good, but they haven't like learned to be really good yet. And that's right when we joined the league. So like when Terrell Hunt, or when whoever it was, like we like Terrell Hunt. He's on our team. We think we might win. Like, which every football player ever says every week, no matter who it is. Like, that's what every FCS team probably says in their interviews before they play Alabama. Um, but that just, like, set them off on this, like, and that, that then everything just, like, snowballed from there, not to uh, borrow from Greg Robinson. <laughs> um, but it's just, like, everything lined up for, like, our fan base is just a certain way and their fan base is a certain way. And the two programs were in these certain points where, like, Syracuse is coming off some nice blowout wins before that first game. Uh, that was like the Tulane Wagner back to back where we scored like fifty points each. Um, so I, I just think that first matchup set us off on this weird like path and it really hasn't veered much between uh, you know, their fans booing our players who, you know, they thought were were going down um, with fake injuries, which our fans have now done the same thing now that we're yeah. running high up tempo offense, which I don't like. Exact same thing. Um, exact same thing. Uh, and our players were like for the most part I think legitimately hurt in that game. Um and that's, like, part of the reason I really don't like when our fans do that. Um, like, everything that's happened has just been, like, taken as such a grievance by, I think, both sides, honestly. At this uh, point. So now we have this, like, weird non-rivalry rivalry. Like, it's not really a rivalry because, like, we're... We've actually been competitive the last two two games, but I don't really think that's even played that much into it. It's just, like, 
the fan bases online are so are just go at each other, and it's it's weird compared to like Florida State, which is the obvious example, if not just in in the ACC and college football as a whole, um, of like being, being a quote bad unquote internet fan base, and like we have for whatever reason a really good relationship with Florida State fan base, and it, they've been just as good as Clemson for the most part in that stretch, and it's just a different animal. Counter to that, I mean, no, I agree with you, but do you think we and and this is going to get. Like, people are going to get pissed off about this, but do we get along with Florida State because on the basketball side we're just as terrible as a fan base? Like, do we see... Like, do we see parts of ourselves in Florida State and Clemson, and then for Clemson we hate it, but for some reason with Florida State we love it? I don't know. I, would, I don't know that I'd go that far. I think... With Florida State, when we first played them, um, obviously they they were on their way to winning the national championship with Jameis Winston. But right. I just feel like they were way more secure in who they are as a fan base. Right. And if there was any like trash talking coming from Syracuse, which there probably was that week, like, I don't remember, but it's just none of it made headline news. And there's no <laughs> Jay Slater writing you know 18 letters to the editor about it. Um, but like you know they're not going to get like all you know freaked out by that because it you know they know who they are even if like. They'll, they'll go attack you if you say anything about their players who gets in trouble, uh, rightfully or wrongfully. Um, but in terms of like someone saying they might pull the upset this week, like that for whatever that I don't think is going to affect Florida State's fans. Like they they get aggrieved like in a major way, but it's about very different stuff. It's fair. So yeah, it's talking a little bit about Florida State, um, Dan. I'm assuming you spent some time at last week's uh, Clemson Florida State game. It kind of took up a lot of the evening for folks. I know um, after I got back from the Utah Washington game. I spent a good amount of time uh, watching FSU Clemson. Uh, was there anything that you took away from that game on Clemson's side, good, bad, or otherwise? Um, it was interesting. This Clemson team, like, eerily reminds me of the 2014 Florida State team. Like, like post die. going to a championship, obviously Florida State won. And... Excuse me? I said won't die. Oh, <laughs> I said my mic died. Oh, it? no. <laughs> yeah, they they won't die. Um, but, like, they both told me off a championship. And this isn't, like, unique to these two. Like, uh, between, like, the, win, the the national championship winning team and the runner-up, especially the runner-up, I feel like there's, like, a weird hangover effect the year after. Um, and it's, like, they're, they're going through – they're getting, you know, back to the place where you everyone thought they should go. Everyone had Clemson one or two. Everyone at Florida State won the year after because they returned, like, their whole team, very similar to Clemson this year. But they just don't seem to have that sharpness, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like motivation thing where it's tough to get a team back up after like a year off after a probably, what was probably a pretty emotional run for Clemson uh, to going fourteen and zero and then dropping Alabama in a game that they you know, very easily could have won. You could argue they outplayed Alabama. Um, so it, it, it is interesting, and it, and it makes uh, the Syracuse game interesting because we've a seen Syracuse now pull a big upset. Obviously, Virginia Tech isn't Clemson, but it's not like a crazy jump. I don't think. Um, and Syracuse has played Clemson tough for two years in a row now. There's obviously some, like, strange bad blood. Um, and Clemson just, like, they play really sloppy football a lot of the time this year. So it makes, I think, this this year pretty interesting. And, uh, yeah, I think the Florida State game, like, you could argue that maybe there's, like, a, a little bit of a letdown factor after they played, like, a, a really tough game against the Knowles and Dalvin Truck, who had, a, who had an awesome performance. Yeah, I think it's a good point there. I mean, I was saying to my buddies when we were watching the game last week, I think the the big, as much as it would have been nice to see Florida State win, um, I was rooting a little bit for Clemson, but I wanted a game exactly the way it went down, and that was, um, you know, an emotionally draining game, a physically draining game. Both teams take a beating, um, and then Clemson has to, I mean, yeah, they don't have to go on the road, um, but Clemson then has to turn it around seven days later after taking a physical beating against Florida State, um, and their offense, when it's clicking, uh, you know, will punish you, um, they recover from that, and then seven days later, you have to face Syracuse, and it's up-tempo offense and, and, and the pace that they present. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's an advantage for Syracuse. I don't think it's a game-breaker. Like, it's not the type of thing that is going to decide the contest for them. Um, one thing that I know, um, you know, Shaking the Southland, um, the uh, Espanese Clemson blog, identified uh, right away as a potential, um, you know, point would be, uh, you know, fumbles. And I think that that's, it's not the only thing that's different this year without that same sharpness, but it's definitely part of it. Um, Clemson uh, fumbles more than most teams in the country. 15 fumbles this year. They lost eight of them? Yeah, 15 fumbles, lost eight. 
the 15 fumbles is one of the 30 highest rates in the country. Uh, interestingly enough, though, you look at the teams up top in these rankings for fumbles, most of them are pretty good. Um, Tennessee, Utah, uh, Virginia Tech, Louisville, uh, Penn State, Western Kentucky, USC, Kentucky, uh, and a bunch of others. Um, Houston, among others, again. Uh, just a lot of teams that seem to lose the ball or put it on the ground pretty frequently, um, despite the fact that they're still winning games. And I guess, you know, for the most part, you would equate fumble luck with winning or losing. But here, it doesn't necessarily seem to have the same correlation, um, at, at least for the teams that I'm looking at right now. Yeah, fumble luck is huge. Um, I think Bill Tonley's talked about it recently. Like, Tennessee got off to its fast start because I think they recovered something like seven of their first eight fumbles this year or something crazy. Yeah. And it's just like, that's such a huge game changing play. Um, it doesn't totally shock me that the teams you listed were leading in fumbles. I don't know if that was fumble. Was that just like raw fumbles? That was raw fumbles, not lost. Yeah, so that doesn't shock me if only because almost all those teams to a, you know, basically to a program run some version of like a, an up-tempo offense at this point yeah um obviously that's like a growing list nationally uh like i don't think of that i can't think of that many teams that are running like slow it down offenses at this point but like those are a bunch of like pretty fast groups so i think just pure plays run um it's going to drive up fumbles just because you're you know higher percent chance of fumbling more often if you're running more plays um but yeah turnovers is obviously just a massive factor um and Clemson just overall is definitely between fumbles and i think watson has like i think he already has eight picks this year he had five all of last year if i'm not mistaken yeah um just overall he's like he's been a little uh more and that, you saw the same thing with winston it's like another um comparison between this this team and that 14 florida state team like his his interceptions went up from like i think five for the full year or something as a freshman to like i think he threw double digit picks he actually almost threw he must have thrown like he threw a lot that that second year he did i remember Um, i think part i mean part of it's an overconfidence thing too and and that's not to say that james winston wasn't great in college he was and he was hasn't shown himself to be progressing in the pros because he has um but it's to say that you know after after you win the heisman after you win a national championship or come close in, in deshaun watson's case on both fronts um you know there can be a little bit of overconfidence in your abilities to fit uh the ball in certain spaces i feel like his receivers last year um, as a group, we're better. I mean, he still has very good receivers out there, don't get me wrong. Um, I think Mike Williams, Jordan Leggett, and, you know, Artavis Scott are all, you know, names worth watching. But, you know, I just think last year, last year the amount of targets he had out there, and then also the running game, um, you know, again, I know Shaken Southland talked about the fact that um, the Clemson offensive line hasn't been as good, and that's really, you know, uh, had a negative effect on the run game. Um, I don't think it's necessarily affected how much Deshaun Watson takes off. I think that's just a natural thing that uh, quarterbacks with some speed will do um, when they know NFL talent scouts are watching and they could lose themselves out millions of dollars if they get hit the wrong way. But you you look at a guy like Wayne Gallman, who still running well, but they're just not handing it off to him as much. And he's still, you know, averaging five yards a carry. He's just not... He's still he's moving the ball well again, but he's not moving the ball with the same amount of proficiency that you saw last year. And I think part of that, you know, is attributable to the offensive line issues they were alluding to. Yeah, I think for for Clemson especially, it's it's very much the O line. Like it's a much different animal. Um, I think they lost what three or four starters from last year. Like that was a group that really got hit, even compared to like the receiving core. Actually, on paper, like. I thought the receiving core would be as good or better because they, they lost Mike Williams so early last year, and he's back, and he's looked pretty good. I don't know that he's like 100% yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the offensive line, I mean, just overall, we see what happens with Syracuse this year. Um, just losing like one or two guys is a pretty big impact, especially when you're filling them in with like green players behind them, and Clemson has had um, those issues as well this year. So uh, that's definitely a big part of it, I think. Agreed, agreed. Um I know over on the defensive side, this is where, um, you know, Stephen Bailey had a great article today uh, using some pro football focus numbers. Um, We actually have like a link to that um, on Friday. So not up right now for those who listen to it when it first goes up in your whatever store you listen to this on. But um, for those who wait until it's posted on the blog on Friday, um, we can throw a link in there um, just about how the offensive line is graded out on a game-to-game basis, which linemen have been attacked the most. But he does mention, you know, one of the bigger issues is that, you know, Clemson's one of the best pass-rushing teams in the uh, country. And while, um, you know, Clemson has 31 sacks, it's second most in the entire country, only behind Alabama with 32. 
Um, they do it from pretty much everywhere. Um, you see a, a variety of different blitz schemes. Um, you have a lot of guys uh, finding their way into the backfield from all different parts of the, the field. Um, I think the most sacks on the team is only four and a half. I think there's about ten players with at least one and a half sacks. Um, so yeah, I, I think that you know based on those uh, those offensive line numbers that uh, that Bailey pulled over on Syracuse.com, um, we're gonna have our hands full, and I think it's it's. More, even more than the Clemson offense, because I mean, they're going to score points, and especially against Syracuse defense. I think this Clemson defense is something that you know SU just hasn't seen all year, and, and I'm personally a little concerned about how they're going to be able to hold up and keep Dungy upright. Yeah, that's that's definitely my worry spot. Um, like you said, Clemson's pass rush, it's not like you can focus fire and double team like one guy coming off the edge and, and then be okay and, and just deal with the rest. Like. Like you said, their, their sack numbers come from everywhere. Um, they actually also did a big inside rush, which is pretty dangerous. You have Christian Wilkins, who has three and a half sacks. is probably one of the more uh, dynamic inside rushers in the entire country. You have Dexter Lawrence, who has two and a half sacks from inside. Carlos Watkins, I think, leads their team four and a half. I think he plays all over the line, but he's you know listed as a defensive tackle. So it's not like they're just getting, like, you know, they have one guy, like they have in years past, like a bit Beasley, who's going to put up 18 sacks coming off the edge, and everyone else is kind of cleans up the run game. Like, this is a very... Um, just balanced across the board. You never, you, you don't know where they're coming from. They come from the linebacker level. They come from all across the D line. Um, it kind of, I mean, it's it's uh, it just the, the stuff that that they've done on defense the last couple of years under uh, Brent Venables is really really impressive. Like he's, I'm shocked he doesn't get brought up for more uh, head coaching jobs. Um, I just I don't, don't know think if he wants, wants them, it. or I don't. know. It's got to be. It's that. possible. He, I mean, he gets paid. He gets paid like head coach, like. There are guys we've seen at like the college and NFL level who just seem more comfortable being a defensive coordinator, and they either have been, you know, they've come to realize this about themselves, or they just don't have that desire to lead a whole team, and they're happier focusing on one side of the ball. And I don't know if that's the case for him, but like on on, on paper, he should be blowing up as like a, a huge um, head coach prospect. And and I don't know, I mean, he comes and pays him like he's a mid level power five head coach, so. That might be good for him, uh, and it's definitely good for Debo Sweaty, who uh, obviously any of us who who watched that West Virginia ball game knows what the Clemson defense looked like not that long ago. And, uh, yeah, it's a different animal now, and it's the reason that they're a national title contender. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Venables is is a really – I was very pro this choice. I know there were a lot of fans around the the conference. This was back at my old blog uh, when I was writing more about every ACC team, um, and I was talking to fans a lot. Um, around the conference, and a lot of folks were anti-Venables. Uh, they just felt like it was a bad hire. Oklahoma's defense was kind of trending downward um, after the hire, but you know, Venables was actually inspired by that Orange Bowl blowout against West Virginia. He felt like there was a lot he could do to fix it. Um, I mean, he's definitely somebody who um, you know learned under under Snyder uh, at Kansas State. So right away, like you know, this is a guy who who gets it. But on top of that, like. You know, was was under Bob Stoops for uh, what, twelve, thirteen years um, as a co-defense coordinator and then defense coordinator. Like this is a guy who, who's, like you said, seemed very comfortable in that role. Um, just a guy who, like, gets understands exactly what he needs to do as defense coordinator. Understands exactly the system he wants to play. Um, I mean, what he's done at, at Clemson, in my mind, at least, has is definitely far surpassed what he ever did at Oklahoma and. You know, I, I don't necessarily see him going elsewhere. I mean, he's definitely been uh, rumored elsewhere. The only place that he might go um, would be probably if KSU opens up. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting because obviously, like, we expect KSU to open up probably in the next two years, if not this year. Right. Um, and that's, like, one of those programs, like uh, the Oregon job, which we talk about fairly frequently, like, there's not an obvious tire there because it's in very specific circumstances and... Not, not like it's not the same thing as Oregon, where Oregon's very specific in terms of the system they want to run. Um, Kansas State is very specific in the geography and how you build a program there. And you know, maybe his time there, he kind of understands how Snyder succeeds there, and he'd be a good fit. Um, that, that'd be a really interesting hire, I think, because that's like there are, there are a couple of jobs around the country that have like a lot of success. Um, obviously, Kansas State's not like they're not playing for titles every year, but they've come close a couple times, and they they frequently win 10 games in the Big 12, which is no small feat, um, as much as we like to make fun of the Big 12. Um, but there's just like a couple of those jobs that are like high-level jobs that come with very, very specific um, 
guidelines that you need to follow or it appears that you need to follow to do well. And Kansas State obviously failed miserably when they when Snyder retired the first time. So it will be interesting to see what they do the second time. Uh, and Venables is a name like he has the connections there, which I think is, is probably important because that feels like a job to me where if you don't know the, the, the whole deal there, like how Juco reliant they are, yeah, you're just not going to do well. And I think that kind of happened the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at programs that are so Juco reliant. I mean, I'm looking at two in particular, and one of them we talk about on here a decent amount, which is weird considering we never faced them, uh, Nebraska um, and Kansas State. I think Nebraska is a great look at a, a program that's changed jobs a couple times. Um, and, you know, you have some guys that have understood, you know, what it takes to be in that, that job. You have others that, that, that don't. Um, obviously it's Juco reliant. You're not necess- you're not going to be able to bank on, you know, kids in Nebraska and Kansas and Missouri, um, and some of the other States out in the plains, like you're going to need to, you know, work that local Juco pipeline and then also find ways to get into, um, you know, your California's, your Texas, things like that. I think with Kansas state, um, they're heavily, heavily Juco way more so even than Nebraska. Um, and a lot of it's local because, you know, Kansas has such a vibrant Juco system over there. Um, but, you know, I was just looking through on Wikipedia, just the like list of coaches at KSU, um, and really very few of them have had winning records. Um, and, and that's kind of where, you know, like you were saying, having someone who understands how they do things there is just so, so enormous. And for Snyder, I mean, they're, he doesn't have like a, a, this huge pool of assistants that have been branched out elsewhere. And to be honest, Venables might be the only guy, um, who could really step up into this job, um. And I, I'm not, it's not, I feel like even more so than Oregon. Oregon has a, a, a flurry of names you could toss out there, um, both within the family and outside the family. And you could make a case for either. And it really just depends on, you know, what Phil Knight wants. Um, but in terms of this job, I think Bill Snyder might have the final say-so on, you know, who takes this job. And I think somebody who gets it like Venables, um, I know, again, I know his name doesn't come up a ton um, for one reason or another. Uh, this could be the job. And for all we know, this might be the off season. I think, if KSU doesn't make a bowl, I could see Snyder kind of bowing out. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about it, too. Like, you just don't really... He hasn't announced it. He doesn't appear like he's going to announce it. Um, he's just... I think he's just going to ride off into the sunset at some point, and it could be, you know, in a couple months, and it could be in two or three years. So uh, we'll definitely keep keep an eye on that because it's going to be a pretty wacky uh, carousel this, this offseason. Uh, it already is, so... Uh, we, you know, we already have Les Miles studying game film and has decided to rededicate himself to the modern offense. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why Les decided to do this now and not like four years ago or last off season when he knew he was like a minute from being fired. But good, good on you, Les. I wish. I wish I could do a really good Les because I feel like, I feel like an entire podcast of Les watching a Syracuse game would be a lot of fun. <laughs> That'd be so good. <laughs> like I need to find somebody. I feel like. I feel like Spencer does a really good one. Uh, the, the occasion is it Spencer or Jason? He usually does it for them. One of them does a really good one um, on on shutdown fullcast. Uh, sometimes speaking of other SB Nation podcasts, I know because um, you mentioned less um, on podcast name played nobody this week. They were talking about um, what would have happened if Iowa State didn't beat Oklahoma State on that Friday night game, and and discussing you know kind of the the large-scale ramifications, you know, less would have two titles, Saban would have one less, um, Oklahoma State could have potentially, you know, taken a leap as a program, um, and, you know, for one reason or another, it's funny, um, and, and I know you follow this as well, like, teams just don't really break through, like, Oregon is one of the only teams to be able to really make that breakthrough into the upper echelons of college football by way of just money um, and not history, and it's funny, like, the moment you can point to is, like, reasons why teams never made that leap, whether it's Colorado, you know, in the early 2000s or, or the early 2000s Oregon teams before they really got rolling. Um, you know, that Oklahoma State team um, that since then, like, you know, they, I mean, Mike Gunny does a great job, but they, they haven't been able to get really back to that, you know, top three teams in the country uh, conversation. Uh, and then, I mean, something as, as silly as, you know, that Pitt game, the Pitt-West Virginia game, that prevented West Virginia from playing for a national championship. I mean, there's so many instances of just how close these, these you know, kind of interlopers were um, to making it and didn't. And I think, you know, it was just an interesting conversation talking about like, the full-scale ramifications of, you know, could they have fired less this year 
if he's if he had two championships would the last few years have gone the same for less if he had won two championships you know i'm not sure i, I think it'd be hard to imagine that he would he would have been uh let go midseason maybe it would happen in a couple of years but like once you've once you've won two it's very difficult like two it's such rarefied air that you kind of i think at that point decide your own fate i mean who was the last coach i mean his last coach to get fired with two down championships, Paterno, and obviously that wasn't because of him not winning enough. Like, it's gotta be right. Who's last coach to be fired? Who's last coach to be fired for football reasons with two national championships? Who's the well? I guess who's the last non-saving coach? Huh, I don't know. Like, because Meyer excused himself. Like, yeah, he didn't fire himself. Yeah, he right. stayed there. That's what, that's what I mean. Like everybody, anybody who's won two championships unless you're at like one of the big four or five programs just leaves yeah i'm, I'm gonna pull the list uh, and like kind of browse it and see if i can figure it out because it's uh i bet it's not more than a handful of guys yeah let's uh, i mean and this isn't great podcasting but at the same time <laughs> it's definitely interesting i'm definitely interested in the result like there's the list is, is not that long to begin with and if some of these guys are fired, I bet it was before they won too. I mean, you have uh, Bear Bryant, who I don't believe was fired at Alabama. <laughs> Bernie, I mean, uh, Bernie Beerman's way back. Howard Jones is, you know, Yale in the 1900s and USC in the 20s. Obviously not Saban. I mean, I also feel like it, 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 there might not be ever be one because, like, guys didn't get fired as much back in the day. That's true. Um... Did Tom Osborne, I'm guessing, just step down, right? That was that was young. Yeah, he stepped down. He'd just be AD. Barry Switzer, did he step down? I'm guessing he did. I thought he did. He's still a legend. Yeah. Like, right. I, I don't know that there is one. I do not know. So there you have it. Something I don't know. So Les Miles and also Paterno, did he only win the one? Uh, did Paterno never win a second one? I don't believe so. Okay, so. Paterno doesn't even count. Great. So, on that note, Les Miles was not the only, would have been the only, but was not because he only won one. So, yeah, a, a very interesting conversation, one that I would hope somebody else writes an article about. If not, I might, because um, it sounds like a fun conversation piece. Um, anyway, Dan, why don't, we, uh, why don't we cruise into halftime before we talk about more Syracuse and non-Syracuse-related things? Cool. What have you been drinking? Uh, so the couple of new things... Well, one's a new thing. One's a thing I didn't realize I had had before, but liked it a lot more this time. Um, the former is uh, from Evil Twin Brewing, uh, which we've brought up. Obviously, it's, it's I guess, technically local to New York uh, by way of uh, Brooklyn, but it's brewed all over. Uh, most of the brewing is done, or a lot of the brewing is done at Two Roads in Connecticut, one of my favorite breweries from towards my hometown. This one is actually brewed in uh, Westport, South Carolina, at Westport, which we've talked about uh, a number of times here. Uh, I know we've had the their uh, Mexican cake, which is awesome. Uh, this was called, uh, I guess, cover your kids' ears if they're listening, whatever. Uh, why, why are your kids listening to a strange Syracuse <laughs> podcast? Uh, it's called Wet Dream. Um, it's uh, it was a if I'm, it was a, a bit of a coffeeish stout. Um, slash brown ale, uh, kind of. I, I guess technically it's a brown ale, but it had some stout-ish qualities in terms of like the color and the head and everything. And I kind of drank like a stout. Um, it's really big flavor. Uh, the coffee was not overpowering. I don't like like a. I don't like most coffee beers. Um, this one was actually kind of nice. That I complimented the beer without being like it, you were drinking some kind of weird like coffee-based drink. Like mm-hmm. the flavors were there. Uh, it worked pretty well. It, you know, it was definitely not in my normal wheelhouse. Um, but it, it was, you know, definitely enjoyable. I, I liked it, and obviously those two breweries are awesome, so I'm not surprised they, they came up with something pretty good. If you like coffee beers, I'm sure you'll really enjoy this one. Um, the, the description is also great because it calls it lusty and incoherent, which I don't know what that means in beer <laughs> terms, but I trust them. I did not feel lustful or necessarily incoherent while drinking it, but uh, sure. Um, and then the other one was a Big Daddy IPA from Speakeasy, which I believe is in San Francisco. Yep. Um, I had I had this uh, apparently like a, a year, year and a half ago, and the last time I really didn't like it, and I th- thought it was because it was flat. 
Um, I had a, the dinosaur in Harlem, so I guess their tap was just like funky. Um, that was definitely the case because I had it this time, and I actually really liked it. Um, that bumped it up like a full point on Untapped because that's the thing that matters. Uh, but just really rock solid IPA. Um, nice and citrusy. Like uh, very, uh, if you're like a looking to ease into IPAs and you're not like a huge hop fan, like this is probably a decent one. It's not overly powerful or anything. But you get like the nice notes there. It was you know very drinkable for an IPA without even. I don't think it's a session, so um, that was pretty enjoyable. Uh, I like that one too. That's it's, it's a half percent, so it's a pretty uh, pretty full IPA and and it drank really nicely. So if you are looking to ease someone down IPAs, I think that's a decent option. Very nice, very nice. Um, so for me, I was in Utah, so tried out some local stuff where I could. Um, had the from Proper Brewing Company, the uh, Lake Effect Goza. Uh, that one was okay. Um, had the full suspension pale ale from Squatters Brewing there. Um, had from two rows, probably my favorite of the weekend, uh, Accelerator IPA. That was a pretty good one. Uh, Red Rock had their IPA Junior. It was kind of a session. Um, and then I had a pumpkin ale from uh, Wasage Brewing and uh, an 1842 Czech Pilsner from Bohemian Brewery. Um, those are all uh, Utah breweries. Um, also drank this week, had a uh, Ninja vs. Unicorn from Pipeworks in Chicago, uh, one of the best uh, breweries in Chicago. A uh, friend sent out a couple cans of that. It's uh, their double IPA, very, very good, and entertaining uh, can artwork as well. Um, and then also had, before the Kanye show last night, a uh, Daisy Cutter Pale Ale from uh, Half Acre. And I know Half Acre gets out to a lot of places at this point, including out here. Um, so, yeah, one of my... I'd say one of my favorite pale ales, to be honest. Uh, do, do enjoy some Daisy Cutter. I don't know if it gets to New York, though. I haven't seen it. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed you weren't able to find the uh, I Love before the show. <laughs> Next time. For sure. Uh, we'll have to make that happen. All right. So maybe we switch gears a little bit to basketball. Um just because there were some brief comments coming out of um, the first exhibition game against IUP. Um, in particular, uh, the fact that not only did they play zone, but that the players expect to play zone this year. Um, Dan, I'm not necessarily surprised by this, but I was surprised at kind of how, how much and how quickly Jim Beheim kind of changed course here when he usually is someone very slow to, to make a course correction like this. Yeah, I mean, didn't he? He just put out a book where he basically like said exactly why he will never play man again, and here right. we are. Um, <laughs> I trust him on it. Like, I, I imagine that he uh, thinks that, that it, what's best for this team is that the ability to play man. Um, I don't know uh, how much we'll actually end up seeing of it because it didn't look good at all. Um, it actually looked kind of like the Lemoyne game, um, and it was kind of weird. It's like, oh, I wonder if he's making the same point. No, they actually seem like they're going to play this. Um, on paper, like I, I like the idea um, as much. I mean, I totally trust his own, and I'm totally good playing zone a thousand percent of the time based on the results of the last couple seasons. But um, I think conceptually, I like the idea of of being able to mix and match, and even if you're like mostly zone, be able to throw man in for a possession or two just to throw the teams off when when you don't want to go full full press. Um, and I think Hopkins has said that he was going to want to play both, so maybe it's a way to like ease into that a little bit. Um, I just don't want to play it if it looks as bad as it did. And, you know, that probably wasn't a fair sample size. Um, I do wonder if uh, some of it is that we have two grad transfers who have played, I'm guessing, almost exclusively man. Um, I don't know a lot about what Colorado State has run the last couple of years. Um, but the fact that they're going to be such big parts of the team, plus you throw in Tyus Battle, who's a freshman, plus you throw in uh, Torrey Thompson. I don't know how much Moyer's going to play this year with the injury. But you have five guys potentially in the rotation. And obviously that depth is one of the things that Beheim has cited uh, in terms of, like, why he wants to play a little bit of man. But maybe it's like, you know, the zone might take a little while to come along, so let's have this backup plan. Or, you know, who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll find out. Uh, I, I don't know that we'll actually know exactly how big the man will be this year until we get into, like, one of these big games because I, I don't think Beheim's going to let us drop a, an early game because he played 20 minutes of man and it got toasted, so... Yeah, and, and I could also see the opposite, though. You know, a game where, you know, Bayheim sees some struggles early on, maybe on the defensive end, and then makes the switch um, against a lesser opponent that we still have some time to come back against. Um, 
I, I think that, that the reasoning behind, you know, the man defense makes a lot of sense um, just because, like you said, all the players you name, plus it's even, you know, Pascal uh, Chukwu, you know, while he was on the roster last year, he didn't play. Um, so, you know, while he might have experienced playing zone and practice, um, practice doesn't necessarily substitute for in-game experience. Um, so I, I think that, you know, when Beheim wrote in his book about never playing man, I think a lot of that was also based on the reality realities of the previous um kind of recruiting demands for him i think um based on what we have now uh we obviously saw you know the last two classes have been kind of transfer heavy um this next class is probably going to have to be transfer heavy unless something changes with the class of 2017 which is not at all filled out yet um in any way for syracuse um and they could potentially lose you know five six seven guys even uh, from this year's roster so yeah, I, I think that at the end of the day, like it's great that we've been able to to streamline the zone and find the right athletes. And Bayhan's really done a great job in recent years of kind of centering in on you know the athletes that work best for the zone. But um, at the same time, I think where that kind of goes out the window is in situations like this. So maybe you know by the time Hopkins takes over will have come full circle again and been able to recruit, you know, zone specific, and then Hopkins can kind of do what he pleases. But I think for right now, uh, unfortunately, for what, I guess what Beheim's greater desires are in this case, um, he might have to go to zone because of the the continual roster turnover that's going to happen now for the next season or two at the very least. I really enjoyed the reaction to when people, like, Watch this game. Um, I enjoyed the reaction, like from national people. Like, I think it was even like a topic around around the horn and stuff of like behind Be- Be- played man, <laughs> and people were like, "Wait, what?" And, and it's funny because like for so long, for like I feel like for a couple of years, people were like complaining about like the fact that he played zone, and like for some people, it was like this weird thing that made the program seem lesser or something. Um, and now it's like it's become so ingrained, and you've had the two recent Final Fours, and obviously the national championship going back. Uh, a little over a decade now, um, or it's kind of proved itself. Like the team has been a factor almost every season for a while. Um, that it's like he played man in an exhibition, and it became like legitimately, if not national news, like at least a, a, a national piece of like inquiry. Yeah, pretty wild. I uh, and, and, and you know, like we said, it is kind of weird considering that like before two thousand nine. Uh, man defense wasn't necessarily like this weird kind of fold and it just in the last few years turned into an absolute anomaly because Beheim went all in on zone realizing you know finally I guess what we could what we could do with that sort of advantage on the defensive end Um, but yeah it's it is a testament to what he's been able to accomplish with the zone that you know him I mean there's no other there's no other at least basketball coach who would make headlines for for changing a style of of their team um, for a portion of the game, I think even in you know college football, I think there's very few coaches um, who would make headlines for doing that for maybe a quarter. Um, even like a you know an air raid team running for for a quarter wouldn't even really be that weird. I feel like the life cycle on this from a news standpoint was greater than even when Baylor was running like that. You know, fifth string running back. Let's just run the ball up the gut every single down. Um, offense last year on the fly yeah i i mean even even dino babers ran some my formation last game <laughs> like, <laughs> uh so no, i totally agree i think there there are very few coaches that have uh their entire like brand as wrapped up in a specific uh style of play as Beheim is with with the zone and and it really is like they, they've been playing zone obviously pretty famously since 96 um i'm guessing they played a little before that too but like 96 is probably the 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 first like zone primary team mm-hmm. um but it's just sorry, like this last five or six years it's become such a huge part of of who Syracuse is as a program and uh for mostly for for good I'd say mostly like it really has uh the, you can't really argue with the results of that time period so um definitely something to look out for it's definitely made the uh, exhibition season a little more interesting um even more so than it already was with all the new new players and new faces agreed agreed um so yeah, redirecting from basketball, um, for those who want more basketball, uh, next week we'll be doing our season preview episode. Um, it's usually the most listened to episode of the year, um, at least from my experience doing this, uh, where everyone wants to hear about what the basketball team is up to, and coming off a Final Four trip, 
Um, obviously, plenty to discuss. Um, but that'll be next week. Uh, we'll also have a regular show um, talking about football and other uh, scattered nonsense. Um, on the scattered nonsense front, um, while Syracuse is not ranked, um, the college football playoff uh, selection committee released its top 25 on Tuesday. Um, Dan, the top four, Alabama, Clemson, Michigan, Texas A&M. Um, a lot of people have a problem with number four. Uh, do you at this point? Um, I'd say it's hard to have like a problem with it because it, it's utterly meaningless. Um, I, I think the first ever college football playoff ranking that ever came out had Mississippi State at number one. Uh, and I thought that was actually pretty deserved at the time. But, like, what happens now, uh, it seems, like, pretty cut and dry. But odds are we're going to have, like, two or three big games that totally swing our our perceptions of what will end up happening. I think if you ask most people, like, based on what we know today, you probably swap in Washington, assuming they go because it looks like, on paper, they're the best team in the Pac-12 and shouldn't be beaten. Um, but who knows what it'll look like by the end of, by the beginning of December, I guess. So, um, it's hard to get too up in arms about uh, A&M. Um, I think I wrote about this this week. I think the most interesting thing on like a micro level that we learn from these rankings, because while they are mostly meaningless, like you can glean some things of how the committee is looking at teams and weighing things. Um, this committee really likes Arkansas. I think they have them in at like eight or nine. And if you look at the teams that have beaten Arkansas this year, um, you mean Clemson and Yes, I mean Auburn. Thank you. All good. Um, <laughs> the teams that have beaten uh, Auburn's in the top ten, and the teams that have beaten Auburn, uh, Clemson and um, who am I? And A and M, which is the team we brought up. Uh, my mind is not working correctly. Eleven forty-five p.m. Um, are both probably a little higher than you would even argue. Like I think there was obviously the big debate over Michigan and Clemson, number two and three, um, where I guess like the, the resume, Clemson's kind of an unimpeachable resume based on the three big wins they have. Um, but they, like we've talked about before in previewing our game, like they haven't looked great in a lot of these games, but they have a win over Auburn, which didn't look that impressive at the time because Auburn looked like trash to start the year. Um, but now it, it seems like the, the committee is, is really taking Auburn at the value that they've shown recently and not what they were earlier in the year. And I think A&M beat them in week three, so it wasn't that much later. Um, so Auburn's just like a, this weird linchpin, and I think if there is a two-loss team that sneaks in this year, I honestly think this would require them to beat Alabama. I think Auburn is really well-positioned because it just seems like the committee really values what they've become. And right. if they go on a run and they uh, um, and there is like a weird two-loss team in there, which it isn't totally out of the question by any means, you need you know Washington to lose this. It, at the same time, it doesn't look like Washington's going to get the benefit of the doubt if they have a loss. Um based on what we know now, uh, I would watch out for Auburn because, I mean, it seems like the committee likes them and they are legitimately playing better. It seems like sometime in early October, they the defense has been good all year, but their offense, they kind of rediscovered that um, almost like wing-style rushing attack that was so good for them uh, the first couple of years under Dustin Dust Uh It's not totally the same. You don't have the same running threat at the quarterback position with Sean White there, but they have like all these running backs, and they they just run all those awesome like jet sweep uh, packages that were so good with uh, with Nick Marshall um, a couple of years ago. And this offense, it's not quite the same, but it's, it's similar. And it, Melzahn seems to have gotten back to like what worked a couple of years ago, rather than trying to make this like passing heavy offense that he seemed to be going towards for whatever reason recently. Yeah, I completely agree there. I think you know Wisconsin and Auburn seem to be Auburn's definitely a linchpin. Wisconsin and Auburn, though, and Bill Connolly talked a little bit about this um, kind of you know the chaos theory and um, talking about two loss team invading the the playoff. I think that those two are, are, are primed for it. Um, Wisconsin still has um, you know a toughish schedule ahead, um, but but more than that, um, you know Wisconsin would have to, would Wisconsin would beat either Michigan or Ohio State. Um, both would be coming in with either zero or one losses, and to me would seem like prime to get up there, especially with a championship bump and those quality wins. Think same with Auburn. You know, Auburn winning the, the SEC West uh, would mean running through the rest of the schedule um, with two losses and a win over Alabama and a win over Texas A&M. Um, I, based on the, what the rankings look like now, no other team would, would possess, you know, such a quality um, you know, duo of wins. Um, so those two teams are ones to watch. I think, to be honest, it, looking at it, you know, I would put Louisville ahead of Ohio State and probably Texas A&M. Um, 
Um, but otherwise, like I'm fine with Wisconsin and Auburn at eight and nine. I think that what they've done and and yeah, I've kind of written off Auburn's early year struggles too at this point, um, and would definitely put them kind of right around there. Um, oh, and then also, you know, looking at Auburn again, not just the Alabama and Texas A and M wins, but potentially went over a, a one loss Florida, assuming they get past LSU. Um, and again, even if they don't get past LSU, then there's another um, you know quality win for a ten and two or a nine and three. Um, type LSU team. So yeah, I think Auburn is is right now primed better than any team not named Alabama um, to really kind of run through this thing and secure their spot in the playoff. I mean, Clemson looks pretty safe right now, admittedly. Um, and Michigan, um, Michigan does not control its own destiny, if only because um, Ohio State can get through them with a win. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you know Auburn is, is, is going to creep up here, and if teams lose in front of them. Uh, you could easily be looking at going into the Iron Bowl, Auburn kind of at five or six, uh, depending on what happens in front of them. Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting because Wisconsin going into the year, people are like, oh, you know, they might be the best team in the Big Ten West, as that you know has been the case a lot recently. Um, but the schedule is brutal, and that's going to ultimately screw them, and it actually might end up helping them because they they played Michigan tough, they played Ohio State tough. Um, and if they run the table, they'll get a rematch against one of those two teams, and it'd be hard to keep them out. I, I, it's, I struggle to find a scenario where the Big Ten champion isn't in, um, and Wisconsin, that's still on the table for them. They might need a little bit of help, but it's not as much help as you'd normally see with a two-loss team. And the two-loss thing, I, it just seems like that's going to come to fruition some point soon. Like, obviously, it hasn't been the case, and it hasn't been that close the first two years of the playoff. Um, but, I mean, we were talking about LSU before, like, Hus Miles National Championship, he had two losses. So if the BCS can can find a two-loss champion, uh, the College Football Playoff certainly can. Um, I don't know if this will be the year, because like right now there's this very simple path that we all see, um, and that's assuming Alabama runs the table, which it is admittedly hard to envision. Um, Clemson, like they got through the, the hardest teams on their schedule. Uh, the championship game will probably be kind of tough, but like none of the Toastal teams look nearly as good as the teams that Clemson's already beat. Um, and then, you know, if Washington runs the table, which also looks like something they should do based on how they played so far, they'll be in. Uh, and then, obviously, you have the Big Ten champ. Like, it seems pretty simple, but college football really works itself out that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, Wisconsin, if they don't control their own destiny, it's, it's probably way closer than you think. Agreed, agreed. Um, yeah, and especially with, you know, every year um, the committee kind of rolls out some stupid, you know, lingo that, that that only they use, and you've never really heard like bandied about much. And it was, it's been body clocks, it's been you know scheduling intent, <laughs> all these other like stupid things. We didn't really get one this week. Uh, I mean, I, I I felt like committee chair. I felt like strength of record. While it's not like a new phrase in the lexicon, it's its application is new in, in this regard. That, that they decided yeah. that, like, that was... I mean, to me, that was the big takeaway, is that, oh, God, like, you guys are going to base this entire goddamn thing on on people's... On, like, what the strength of... Like, the strength of record metric and nothing else, because you looked at the rankings and you saw, like, it pretty much went down the line with, like, one or so exceptions um, that, like, whoever faced the toughest, you know, strength of record, like, slate, like, like that's what the everything laid out as it was just insane to me that once again like they're tethering themselves to a concept um that that doesn't have a huge amount of proof points you know only eight nine weeks in and it's funny because like if you do pure strength of record like alabama has one win over a team in the top 25 of the touchable playoff ranking so obviously alabama has been rolling people um and part of the reason like tennessee isn't in the top 25 is because alabama beat them by 100 but um yeah, it, it is funny to see like them use that, but then it's like, yeah, but Alabama's through number one, duh, and which they are. But right. um, and also like strength of record is a, I believe, an ESPN Mac. Of course, it is. Um, it, it, so, it always is. Yeah, I don't actually mind strength of record to them, but it shouldn't be like the be all end all. Agreed. Um, but it definitely is a major factor because like that's where you find Clemson ahead of Michigan, that's where you find A and M ahead of everyone they're ahead of. Like that's the clear basis for it, right? I guess one more thing um, before we jump off this and into some Clemson predictions. Um, Big 12, completely screwed in these rankings. Um, 
Big 12 would almost be screwed even if you added all the old teams back into the Big 12. If the old teams were in, Nebraska would be at 10, Oklahoma 14, Colorado 15, um, and then Baylor, Oklahoma State at 17, 18 behind them. Um, obviously, without Nebraska, without Colorado, you're now looking at Oklahoma at 14, and then Baylor and Oklahoma State at 17, 18 behind them, West Virginia at 20. Um, Big 12 is pretty stupid. Uh, for not expanding, and I think this season's going to hammer that home even more so because I don't see a path for Oklahoma the same way I see those other two lost teams, um, and I also don't see paths for... Because um, you figure if Baylor can get through uh, with one loss, um, their best win will be over a uh, a three-loss Oklahoma or a two-loss West Virginia. Um I think for Oklahoma State, you know, same deal. Even if they can get through with two losses, again, uh, even if one of them is shady, um, their best win would probably be over, you know, a three-loss Oklahoma team. Um, and West Virginia, again, it's the same deal, is that you look down the line, and this is something I actually wrote about in, like, week three or four, I think, um, over on the comeback, was just you look down the Big 12 schedule and, like, they're, they're, because of how poorly they did in the non-conference, there is absolutely no methodology to get them into the playoff right now, and that's a scary place to be um, when you start looking at TV contracts and like the super conference talk that is going to creep back in in a couple of years, um, and how well the ACC's done um, in recent years, really kind of elevating itself, you know, past the Big 12's conversations at this point, and maybe even into the like Pac-12 conversation where like okay. You can you can say the SEC and Big Ten are, are you know the best conferences all you want, and and they very well might be at least from a revenue standpoint. But uh, the competition for number three is very much um, in debate. Um, so that leaves the Big Twelve. You know, even if they can close some of the revenue gap, if you can't close the quality gap on the field, eventually you're going to fall behind. Yeah, Big Twelve's in trouble. I mean, that's one of the other big takeaway of these rankings. Like, if there's something to glean from them. It's not really who's in the top four right now. It's, you know, stuff like, you know, who down the list could rise because of the values. And the Big 12 clearly is not impressing people in that room. Um, you have Oklahoma, who uh, had a, a huge 10-point win in Ames tonight, uh, which I'm sure is going to jump them back into the conversation. Um, but, what, 14 or 12? Uh, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, they're all the Big 12 teams are – they're 14. They're, and they're the top team. Um, West Virginia plummeted all the way to 20. Like you're just there's, there isn't mar- there aren't marquee wins to be had because the more you know these teams beat up on each other the worse it makes the other team look and that might not be fair or not but um, the Big Twelve was really riding uh, on based on you know Baylor still hasn't stole a team in, in twenty years um, it was riding itself on Oklahoma and Oklahoma served at least getting one of those two wins against Houston and Ohio State and obviously they didn't and now Houston like doesn't even look like a great team. Um, and Ohio State, like, they obviously look great when they beat Oklahoma. They're faltering a little bit. I think they have a chance of turning it around, but uh, um, they don't look like one of the three best teams in the country anymore. So, like, that was the team that had set itself up, and they couldn't pull it off. And after that, I think, I forget which, which podcast is it was, but they were talking, I think it was, I assume it was podcasting played nobody. Um, I if you look at, like, the entirety of the Big 12's non-conference games, like, what the best win might be, like, West Virginia over BYU. Right. Which, BYU's nice. That shouldn't be the, the best one. That should be, like, at the back end of the top ten. Right, and I think that that's the big issue with it. And it's something that, you know, you and I talked about. It's something a lot of people talked about when talking about the doubts around uh, the Big 12. Is it, like, you can't just bank on this nine-game conference schedule, um... And you did like you're scheduling like trash outside of that, and like everyone can see right through it. And like Oklahoma and Texas aren't scheduling like trash, but they're taking losses as a result. Um, I think as much as I don't want to applaud scheduling poorly, I think Oklahoma and Texas could get by on brand scheduling poorly and not taking on water, you know, in those in those non-conference games the way these other schools have. Oklahoma should have traded Baylor that Ohio State game. Oh yeah. And, like, if Baylor, like, even if Baylor lost that game like, like Oklahoma did, maybe they lose it, like, less less poorly. I bet, like, if Baylor did everything they've done already, but had lost to Ohio State instead of, like, by a touchdown, instead of beating one of the teams they did beat, um, and then they still have that loss, 
uh, to Texas, like I bet Baylor would actually still be higher in the rankings than they are now. The yeah, two losses, with one of them being Ohio State. At, at worst, they'd probably be the same. Like I don't think there'd be a huge difference. And Oklahoma would only have one loss, and they'd probably be at like nine, and they'd still have a puncher's chance. If if you just kept the Houston loss and call that fluky, and then have them like beat SMU or something, like they'd probably be better off. But instead, you know, Baylor's Baylor done a Baylor um, because apparently, you know, I, I think they finally scheduled a decent game in like 2026 or something against like Duke. Um, <laughs> yeah, the big, big non-conference matchup. Who knows? Duke will even like Duke might have declared the football uh, the football experiment over by by then, or you know, Dave Cutcliffe will be 83 and and still making bowl games somehow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like eventually Baylor needs to ramp things up. Oklahoma, like I don't blame them for considering the way they did, but like it it just didn't work out, and that sucks. Um, and they're not getting the credit like and and they shouldn't. They're not getting the credit like Wisconsin, who was forced into those that hard schedule and was more uh, you know they they got through it a little better. I mean, they, they obviously didn't win their, their two big uh, cross-division games, but they they looked like they did belong on the field with Ohio State and Michigan, and, it, you know, if they play one of those two teams again in the championship, I think it'll be, if not a toss-up, like, there'll be a lot of arguments to be made that the Thompson can win that rematch. Agreed, agreed. Um, so to close this out, Dan, a little prediction time. Um, what do you see happening between Syracuse and Clemson, and what is your final score? Um, I think... Clemson will win. Uh, I think one of the things that comes from Syracuse playing them tough for a couple of years is that I don't see Clemson taking Syracuse lightly. Um, I just think, you know, Syracuse could have won one of those two games the last two years with, you know, A.J. Lawn and Zach Mahoney playing quarterback um, and Stott Schaefer doing the Stott Schaefer-y stuff, um, especially that game at Clemson. Um, I also think Syracuse's players that have been on this team aren't going to be intimidated by Clemson because they know they can play with them at least to a point. Um, so I think Clemson will win this one comfortably enough. I think the like I think the, the line open at twenty eight is at like twenty seven, twenty seven and a half now. So slight money towards Syracuse. Um, I just think that's too many points for a Syracuse team that in decent weather can move the ball and score on anyone. Um, so I think Syracuse will uh, put up a couple touchdowns. I think Clemson will win it comfortably, but I don't think it'll be too crazy. I'm saying something like thirty eight twenty one Clemson. Yeah, I buy that. Um... So yeah, for me, I just think Clemson probably pulls away somewhere in the third, late third quarter. Um, you know, I, I do think maybe in the beginning of the game they need to shake off some cobwebs, but I think some penalties, maybe a turnover or two, um, you know, forced by the Clemson defense is able to kind of turn the tide for them. Um, I think Dungey still puts up a solid game. Uh, I think we don't run the ball, and that's to our detriment. Um, as much as I approve of just throwing because we can't run the ball, um, it's going to hurt us at some point in this game. I just hope Dungy kind of gets out safe, um, doesn't suffer any injuries. Um, and then I think, you know, again, it's it's penalties. It's going to be a couple turnovers. We're going to lose the turnover battle. Even, I mean, Clemson might put it on the ground once or twice, but um, I, I still think we lose the turnover battle by, by uh, at least one or two. Um, yeah, I've got, I think, 45-27. Sounds like something reasonable. Uh, maybe 28, just because I don't really bank on Syracuse making field goals anymore. But, yeah, that could work. Oh, God. Cole Murphy. Please, please make some field goals this week, bud. <laughs> just, I don't, please. We talked about this before, but just... If it wasn't for all the 50-yarders, he, he would be in such a better headspace. Yeah, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. I think we talked about it off like online, but, like... I, I agree. I think he's been put in really tough situations. Um, I think it's probably caused him to miss some of the hits he should he could be making most times. I hope he is put in positive situations without crazy uh, rushes coming down on him, and he can convert some like mid thirty yard field goals into his confidence backup because he was good last year, and I believe he can be good again. Um, he just needs to be in, put in winning situations, and that's like one of my main. And obviously, if you're complaining about like. When you kick field goals, when you know your coach goes for it on fourth down a lot, like I, I think there are worse complaints to have about your head coach. But one of the things I have thought about, you know, this year, like I wish he would put the ball in Dungey's hands, even if it's like a fourth and eight, more often than he's taking like a fifty-one yarder with Murphy, who's obviously like not where he needs to be. Agree completely. Uh, probably a good note to end us off, uh, Dan. Thanks as always for joining. Much appreciated. Yes, and if we actually win this game. Oh, next week's going to be fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah, very much so. Um, Dan, any other parting notes uh, for you going to the Clemson game? 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm excited to get back on the field. I missed, I missed Syracuse football this weekend. And I think the last two years, uh, I have not <laughs> like been that thrilled to like have the, I, I probably haven't been like that upset to have a bye week. And this week, like, I was fine having the bye week, but like, I don't know. I kind of like having a this team to watch uh, every Saturday. So let's get back to that. Agreed, agreed. Um, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Troy News and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, whatever other service you may use, and go orange. Go orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.